Welcome to UHN Seeds of Science podcast, a show by UHN trainees showcasing how today's junior researchers are growing in their scientific fields. Over this podcast series, you will hear from a wide range of UHN masters, PhD, and postdoctoral trainees across the different UHN research sites. My name is Rima. I'm your host for this week's episode. Today, I talk to Norl Kabi, a master's student in Dr. Dimitri Rosenberg's laboratory at the Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Norl has been passionate about various research themes from refugee mental health to improving care for organ transplant recipients to now investigating respiratory symptoms in rare connective tissue disorders by using both quantitative and qualitative approaches. During my conversation with Nora, I was impressed by her involvement in developing the protocol for her research project while also learning over time how to maintain a work-life balance so that she can enjoy her other passions, including science communication, photography, and becoming a personal trainer. I hope you all enjoy hearing from Noor and that you are as inspired by her experiences as me. Welcome, Noor. So we're so happy to have you here, and we're just going to start off with getting to know a bit about you and your work. So what lab are you currently working in? And broadly speaking, what is your field of research? Hi, it's so nice to be here. Uh, So my name is Noor. I'm a first year master's student at the Institute of Medical Sciences. And I'm currently working with Dr. Dimitri Rosenberg. And my work is focused uh, on respiratory health and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders. So I'm mainly looking at the association of respiratory symptoms with quality of life, physical activity, daily functioning. That sounds like amazing research. So how did you get to this point? Have you had previous research experience in a different field? So it's quite a convoluted story. Um, My first taste of research was kind of in the summer of my first year of undergrad. I, I was doing a double major in biology and psychology back then, and I had no idea what research was, so I just kind of wanted to try it out. And I found this uh, psychology project, which was actually focused on um, refugee mental health and, and children. And I really enjoyed it, but I also kind of felt like as I was taking more courses related to health and exposed to some of the more biological uh, topics as well, I kind of got interested in clinical research. And I stumbled upon, again, this is all kind of multiple tabs open online and just kind of looking up the different research positions that were available. I found this uh, group called the Kidney Health Education and Research Group, which is led by Dr. Esteban Muchi. And uh, they mainly kind of work on improving care for uh, solid organ transplant recipients. So kidney, kidney pancreas, lung, heart, uh, liver. And I worked on a few different projects with that group. And I I really liked clinical research in that area. And then kind of started focusing more on the lung transplant recipients and trying to understand their symptom experiences. At the same time, in undergrad, I did a capstone project focused on improving respiratory health for older adults. And so I kind of, when the time came to apply to my master's, I was thinking about the different, um, I guess you could call them themes. So a few different kind of concepts came out. So I, uh, I was kind of a little bit focused on respiratory health. Um, I did a lot of quality of life work. I was interested in physical functioning, but I hadn't been exposed to it that much. So it was kind of like a, I remember making a star and when I was looking for supervisors, I was interested in supervisors who were doing some more physical functioning work. And I came across uh, Dr. Dimitri Rosenberg, who's my current supervisor. He's a respirologist, so he focuses on respiratory health and he works with a number of populations. 
And I remember I initially approached him for a different project, but during the interview he said, well, I actually have this other project. Um, it's a really cool area uh, focused on respiratory health and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders. And I really loved his personality just kind of in the interview. He seemed like he would be a great mentor. So it was a combination of like, I found a good mentor. I found an interesting project. It definitely did address some of the um, themes that I had been exposed to, but it also offered some new questions that I hadn't uh, worked on before. Yeah, I think a lot of students aren't certain from the beginning what topic they want to end up researching, but it's really reassuring hearing from your story how even if you didn't have a strong idea, you got closer each time you learned something new, and so you continue to be guided by these different themes coming up from your experiences. So I did want to ask you a little bit about the research specifically, just to give the listeners some background about EDS and HSD. Since I'm not in the field, I haven't heard of these conditions before, and I was wondering how common are they, and can what you end up finding from this clinical population extend to other respiratory conditions? Yeah, it's a really good question. So this uh, population, they usually have issues in their musculoskeletal system, they have issues in their cardiovascular, respiratory, uh, gastrointestinal, so it's a very multi-systemic condition. And I'm kind of focusing more on the respiratory side of things. Mm -hmm. And so some of the respiratory issues that they present with are shortness of breath, a respiratory muscle weakness, and then a range of other uh, structural, functional, and inflammatory uh, respiratory conditions too. And for EDS and HSD, it is currently considered a rare genetic disorder. And the exact prevalence of respiratory symptoms in this population is actually unknown, but there are some estimates. So there's an estimate that 50% uh, of them have uh, dyspnea or shortness of breath. So there's different subtypes as well for, for this condition. So there's uh, 13 subtypes in total based on the clinical phenotype and then the genetic uh, makeup as well. Um, and then so within, for example, the HEAD subtype, we see 77% uh, of them have respiratory muscle weakness. But a lot of it, a lot of the prevalence is actually unknown. Most of the descriptions have been in, in terms of case reports and, and reviews as well. So that's kind of where I come in and I want to look at exactly what kinds of respiratory manifestations EDS and HSD people have. Um, and then a lot of kind of what I'm looking at right now, it's mirrored in what we see in other respiratory conditions. So for example, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, interstitial lung disease, um, and then other conditions as well, like multiple sclerosis. So for example, one of the things that I'm looking at is the relationship between respiratory symptoms and physical activity. So we do see in these other disease groups that people who have respiratory symptoms um, have very low physical activity levels. And that could be due to a number of reasons. Either uh, people avoid physical activity to not experience more shortness of breath, for example. And then that could lead to some muscle weakness because they're not moving as much. And that deconditioning or muscle weakness could worsen the shortness of breath. So it's kind of like a cycle that we usually mm -hmm. see. Other aspects, like for example, fatigue, we usually see that people who have a number of respiratory symptoms, so a higher frequency severity uh, of respiratory symptoms, also experience a lot of fatigue. And so we kind of see that, and this is just in general about symptoms, they usually don't occur in silos. You don't just have one symptom that occurs. Um, it's usually a number of different symptoms that occur at the same time and kind of 
contribute to each other and worsen each other. So that's what we see in other disease groups. And then for EDS and HSD patients, it would be interesting to see if we see similar associations because, again, they have these multisystemic issues um, and they would experience a range of different symptoms. So it's um, to be looked into. That's really informative. And I think it makes sense that you might find something similar to um, these other respiratory conditions. So looking forward to what you do discover. So Noor, now that you're at this master's student stage, it is completely understandable um, not to have peer-reviewed publications yet to discuss, but would you like to discuss anything in terms of projects you're working on or developing or just any accomplishments that you're really proud of? Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of my master's, I'm working on a cross-sectional study that is looking into understanding the relationship between respiratory symptoms and quality of life, physical activity, and daily functioning. And that cross-sectional study, I kind of developed the protocol along with my supervisor in September of 2021, so right when I started. And we're using kind of a combination of individual interviews, so qualitative techniques, Fitbits to track physical activity levels, and then patient-reported outcome measures, uh, kind of questionnaires, to gather information about the different aspects of health that we're looking at. And then I'm also helping out with a related randomized controlled trial on using inspiratory muscle training to improve the respiratory muscle strength of people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorder. I also want to say that I really liked that I was able to develop the protocol for this study along with my supervisor, so it wasn't like a here you go, work on this project type of thing. Um, it was a lot of back and forth between what I was interested in. Uh, so for example, I, I use qualitative techniques in this study and throughout my undergrad, I've also used qualitative techniques and that's something that I really value and really enjoy too. Um, and my supervisor kind of said, well, we can incorporate it in this project. And we you know, had a lot of back and forth and we worked, at, worked it out so that we could incorporate qualitative techniques into the project. So. That's always uh, a tip that I have for people is if you are able to develop a project from scratch, it's nice because it gives you that autonomy as well over the project and you know it from start to finish. I find that the structure of a master's is very different for everyone and this is the kind of structure that I've worked out with my supervisor is I have my main thesis work, that's my priority, and if I have time, I can expose myself to these other smaller projects. And especially, I know you mentioned publications uh, early on. Uh, a lot of times people will publish their master's after they've graduated. Mm -hmm. So a really great way to get your hands on some publications while you're still in grad school is to just contribute to other side projects some other students are running. And you get to learn from these projects as well, which is kind of nice. In terms of accomplishments, I mean, I really like that I was able to develop this project. It was a lot of reading and writing and just back and forth and thinking. So even just developing this project was really um, something that I, I, I looked to as an accomplishment. Um, I've also been able to secure some funding for my master's. So I recently received the CIHR grant. Amazing. And then, yeah, I've kind of been able to work on a few abstracts and I'm currently working on papers hopefully to be finished so. yeah and I think I think how it goes especially with research is that a lot of things are long-term projects so it makes sense to work on multiple things that come together in the end um, but I do think it's really special especially as a master's student that you got to help develop the study 
Oftentimes a supervisor already has designed a study and obtained funding for it, and then students choose within that project what questions interest them, but being involved in developing it is amazing. There's well. some perks to both as well. Mm -hmm. So again, like I mentioned, you get that autonomy if you kind of develop the project on your own. Um, it is a, a relatively smaller project though, I would say kind of um, not as big as some of the other projects that are running at the lab. So that's just the only thing to keep in mind. It's been amazing hearing about everything you've accomplished so far and the impact your findings will have. But we want to also talk about some of the challenges we encounter as graduate students. So is there anything you'd like to share about challenges you've encountered, either transitioning from undergrad to graduate school or in graduate school? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of challenges in grad school that I feel like I wasn't expecting to experience. Most of the time I'm working at home and I do come into the hospital, I would say maybe once or twice a week, depending on whether I need to test patients for one of the studies or not. Uh, but it can be isolating to work from home for, for quite some time. And I think that's something that I wasn't expecting. And then also, because of the nature of a grad school here, where it's like you work with your lab, essentially, um, and even if you have friends in the same program, they're working in their own labs and sometimes I find that you're not able to know who's kind of part of your program or have time to um, go out and just socialize and that's kind of where I struggled a little bit in the beginning um, but I do find that there are ways that you can kind of schedule in those times to go see people uh, to try to see your lab members as much as possible uh, to try to, sometimes even like the program uh, could offer events where you can go out and see people at your program. So those have really, really been helpful. Um, and I think the other aspect of it is also productivity. I think we talk a lot about productivity as a graduate student, as in how many papers can you submit, how many posters, how many presentations. It takes a lot of patience and time to be able to build that. Um, and I think there's a lot of pressure sometimes to, um, I guess, keep up with those standards. But at the same time, productivity is important because that's kind of like the end result of your research in a way. So for me, what I struggled with is to try to find a balance between I want to be as productive as possible, but at the same time, there's other things that I want to do with my time that are not necessarily research related. I'm definitely someone who has interests in a few different areas. So for example, I do a lot of science communication, I do some podcasting as well, and I find that doing these things is, is kind of a nice break from research, but it also just makes me feel more refreshed and more productive when I come back to research in a way. So I think just trying to find that balance was a little bit of a struggle, but I feel like now I'm at a better place where I kind of know uh, what days and what times I'm working on research and what days and what times I'm working on other extracurriculars that have nothing to do with research and still feel like I'm working towards you know, the papers that I'm writing, the abstracts that I need to submit, the presentations that I need to make. So yeah, those are kind of the biggest challenges that I went through. I feel that's super relatable because I think that's one big thing I felt going from undergrad to graduate school. You no longer had weekly assignments and then midterms and exams and it's still right after each other. 
This is long-term goal, so you have to make sure you're pacing yourself, but also have a balance and structure so you're not burning yourself out trying to be super productive. So yeah, that's very important. And I feel like you mentioning extracurriculars is really good because it kind of gets at that point you were saying at the beginning of feeling isolated. You can also use that opportunity to connect with others when you're part of these organizations like the Raw Talk podcast that you're part of. Oh, for sure. I actually joined Raw Talk right before I started grad school. So it was kind of like a a glimpse of what grad students were going through. And I, I really, really liked the people that I worked with at that time. And the majority of them were from the IMS program too. So that was kind of one of the biggest uh, reasons why I decided to go to IMS is actually because of the podcast. Oh, wow. okay. Um, so I did, so when I did join IMS and I'm still continuing my work at the podcast as well, it was kind of nice to have that continuation. But I think... Yeah, it's nice to connect with people from different programs as well, because um, I think at the podcast, you know, we have people from IMS, from LMP, from, um, we also have medical students, we have a few undergrads, so it's nice to get out of the grad student bubble sometimes and mm-hmm. just meet other people. One thing as well that I did want to touch on was um, all the work you've been doing with science communication, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on why you think science communication is so important, and also how we can tackle um, misinformation spreading, because that's been something we've been dealing with a lot for the past two years. I think for science communication, the way that I like to think of it is um, a lot of times the research that we work on is stuck in these academic bubbles. It's in you know, in forms of publications and journals, we do presentations at conferences, we submit abstracts, we we publish this work for other scientists to see. And I think that's great to learn from other scientists. Uh, but I also think that it's important to be able to engage with the public, with the research that you're doing. Having accessible science is important for people to kind of make decisions about their themselves, their health. It does also contribute to Uh, policy decisions to government decisions. So I think that in general, having accessible science is is really, really important. Um, And I also think that, I guess the other part that's related to science communication that I do is also just kind of allowing people to share their stories about their health, living with certain illnesses. I think that's also really important to try to understand the perspectives of uh, patients and caregivers and community members. So that's kind of the two areas that I'm mostly focused on. And then in terms of science misinformation, I'm not an expert, but I would say that it is important to approach science misinformation in a very strategic way, whether it's for yourself or for your family or friends. Um, It's really important to check the sources of information that you're receiving. Uh, But again, also tied into making science communication accessible, people need to have the tools to understand the information that's coming to them. Um, And that's kind of part of science education and science communication too. And then also, what are we doing to, I guess, make the information understandable and digestible for people so that they can make informed decisions about uh, whatever the topic is. If there's maybe something that you're missing, maybe you can learn from the other person. So I think it's really important to uh, go at it in a very calm and strategic way. And sometimes with family, it's a little bit hard because maybe you know about something and it's hard to tell your parents or your siblings or whoever uh, this is not true and this is not actually the case. So I think having the 
vocabulary and language to explain things in a very simple way, in a very digestible way, and not in a demeaning way as well. I think that's very important. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think the challenge is more about how to convey the message without making the person feel like they're not smart enough and that's why they came up to, to the wrong conclusion. It's just you are not aware of this fact or knowledge and allow them to make their own conclusions from this new evidence. I feel like that lets them, if they have an open mind, um, be able to see the different side of what they've been misinformed about. We were also interested in knowing if you've had any mentors or people who have inspired you throughout your scientific career. The first kind of mentor that comes to mind is definitely my supervisor. And I do have others that I will talk about, but I, I do want to give a shout out to my supervisor. He's a really, really great person. He approaches men his mentorship in a very kind of like, you're my colleague and I'm you know, willing to help you and I'm there to support you. Um, and I feel like if there's any question that comes to mind, I can literally just email him and he'd be okay to answer it. And I don't feel like I need to think too much about, you know, how to phrase the question in a way that makes sense and then send it to him. So I think he does a really, really great job at that. Um, and I think that's also really important as a grad student because you're kind of in this weird position where you feel like you should be an expert in your field, but you're not really an expert. And so you sometimes have to ask questions that are really basic and just, you know, it feels like I should already know this. Um, and so that's where having a supervisor that's able to answer your questions in a very kind of easygoing way is really, really helpful. And then I guess the other people that I would say sort of inspire me is my friends who are also graduate students. Their fields are completely different from mine and their work is completely different from mine too. But I think it's always so interesting to see how they approach challenges and how um, they go about grad school in general. I think it's always inspiring to learn from other students. And a lot of times when we think of mentors, we think of people who have accomplished more than us. But I think sometimes it's nice to see other people who are going through similar things as you. And yeah, and of course I have my parents and I'm very, very grateful that they're very supportive. I guess more on like, you know, the emotional side of things, you know, you got this, you can do this. I'm grateful that I have all these people that I can look up to and, and uh, reach out to whenever I need support. It's so important to have a supportive system around us and definitely having a good supervisor is such a key part of having a good graduate experience. Uh, but I also like how you mentioned your peers inspire you because I feel like we don't think about how we're inspiring each other, but it's nice to remember that there is that big impact that trainees have on each other. So it's great hearing about your accomplishments, challenges, and everyone who has been supporting you through all of this. Um, I guess just to wrap up the episode, we want to hear about the future. So what excites you most about the future of the field and where would you like to be five years from now, 10 years from now? That's a tough question, but <laughs> I'll try my best. Um, so I guess in terms of the field that I'm, that I'm in right now, I think there's a lot to explore. We're literally establishing kind of the basics of how respiratory symptoms and manifestations affect the health of people with EDS and HSD. Um, there's definitely potential to incorporate um, 
some kind of training into rehabilitation programs. A lot of these patients are enrolled in exercise programs and rehabilitation programs for their musculoskeletal conditions. There is some potential for inspiratory muscle training, for example, in rehabilitation programs. So I think that would be interesting to explore. And then I guess just kind of general career-wise what I'm interested in. Um, the more time that I spend doing clinical research, the more that I like it. And I'm definitely drawn towards the clinical side of things. Um, I find myself, a lot of times, you know, I do interviews with patients and caregivers and they talk about their journeys and they talk about their experiences. And I feel like I just wish that I was able to provide some sort of care for them. Um, and so I'm, I'm really drawn to exploring the clinical side of things. So um, that's definitely one interest, but I think that I might be in research for quite some time. Not sure, but we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm pretty open to exploring options. And then of course, I'm also interested in science journalism and science communication, which I feel like complements, um, you know, just being in research and being in the clinical field too. So I think that's something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring as well. So there's a lot to do. Well, I feel like this brings us back to the beginning of the episode. You're still getting different experiences and exploring themes that will keep helping you figure out what path you want to go down in the future. So I guess before we wrap up, if you could just give us a fun fact about yourself or something you like doing outside of work, you know, anything you want to share so people can get to know you a little bit. Um, I, I have a lot of hobbies. I will say I pick up a new hobby like every month. <laughs> um, I do love photography. So if you go through my phone, you'll see that I have literally thousands of pictures of me, my family, my friends. Um, I do some digital photography, I do some film photography as well, so I, I really like exploring different mediums of photography and then combining that with digital art too, I think is, is where I try to channel my creative aspects. I like having something where um, it, it's not structured, it's not restricted by a schedule or by time, there's no expectations, I can just do whatever I want, um, so I think that's why I really, really love photography and digital art. And then I try to stay active as much as possible. Um, I love going to the gym. I recently got certified as a personal trainer as well. So wow. I'm looking forward to possibly coaching in the future. So yeah, I try to keep myself busy in a way outside of research so that when I come back to research, I'm a bit more fresh. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Okay. So it was great getting to know you. I'm going to do some like Last minute rapid fire questions, okay? okay? So, um, pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Okay. Salty or sweet? Salty. Texting or talking on the phone? Uh, over the phone. Okay. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? I feel like speak every language in the world because, well, maybe, I don't know. I feel like animals might have some interesting things. They yeah, see, it's a tough they one. They see a lot. <laughs> so maybe animals. Okay. Um, polka dots or stripes? Stripes. Okay. Um, what's your favorite carb? Bread, pasta, rice, or potatoes? Potatoes. Okay. And then lastly, a tropical island holiday or a backcountry camping adventure? Tropical, for sure. Okay, amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Nora. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a little bit about Noor and her scientific journey thus far. If you'd like to reach out to her, her Twitter handle and UHN email is posted in the episode description available at the ORT website. If you'd like to be featured on the Seeds of Science podcast, please reach out to us. We hope you enjoy getting to know UHN trainees through this podcast. 
and stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks' time. CISA Science is proudly supported by the UHN Office of Research Trainees with special thanks to Drs. Amanda Berry and Linda Penn. Hosting, recording, and editing by Dr. Emily Mills and Remel Sayed. Outreach management by Dr. Olivia McHale and Ariana Besick.